0: If the Chevrolet Suburban were a feature film, it would have all the makings of a cult classic. It's bigger than life, older than almost anyone can remember, and it's won a whole new generation of audiences. Bad guys love them.
1: Cartels got to have them. And of course, you can't forget that they're loved by the biggest, baddest authority figures of them all. Moms. What
2: kind of car you got here? Chevy. We have a Chevy Suburban. Oh, that's nice. I like Chevys.
3: Welcome to The War on Cars, the show that's trying to take the Suburban out of the city. And to be
1: fair, to get the Suburban out of the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, too. <right. laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, today, we are going to be talking about the Chevrolet Suburban, uh, a vehicle that has managed to be all things to all people. It's, you know, all-American family car, drug dealer, status symbol.
0: Mayoral, convoy, must-have. Yeah, (laughs) all politicians can be seen in Chevy Suburbans. Your executives.
1: Absolutely. Your your Goldman Sachs guys. It's the corner office of cars. Absolutely.
3: I'm Sarah Goodyear, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, Aaron Naperstack and Doug Gordon. Hello. Hey. And so I am really excited about doing this episode because I've been low-key obsessed with the Chevy Suburban for a while now. It's I get to share that with all of you. Uh,
1: that's, you know, my favorite podcasts are w- where people share their weird obsessions or where weir- weird people share their obsessions. You are not a weird person, but this is a weird, <laughs> this is oh, a weird obsession you, that you have. We are arguably weird. <laughs> we are, we are weird actually, but this is, this is a weird obsession. I wouldn't have pegged you for a suburban obsessionite.
3: Well, okay. So it all started when I was watching HBO's show Succession, which I'm also obsessed with. And I noticed that there were a couple of suburbans that these very super rich people were getting in and out of.
0: Right. So like the suburban in succession, which I am also obsessed with. It's an awesome show. Is this it's it's like one of the signifiers. Like everything in that show is a signifier. They're really careful about how they choose the clothing, the puffy jackets, the right. interior design. And the vehicles are very much chosen as signifiers. So the Suburban really means something. In
3: that right, show. right. So I was looking at it and then I found myself on the street in Midtown Manhattan and was just standing in a corner and I looked around and I realized that there were five or six Chevy Suburbans within, you know, my eyesight. And then I just went down a rabbit hole about... What is the Chevy Suburban? Why is the Chevy Suburban? And what does it mean in terms of the way that SUVs are just kind of taking over the world?
1: Okay, so hold on a minute. Before we get further into Sarah's suburban obsession, we have some business we need to take care of. We rely on you, our listeners, to contribute via Patreon to help us produce this podcast. If you go to waroncars.org, click Donate you can contribute. You'll get t-shirts, stickers, all kinds of goodies. You'll get access to
0: special episodes, all kinds of great stuff. And in addition to our Patreon sponsors, we actually have a sponsor sponsor.
1: That's Uh, very cool.
0: Yeah. Our first real sponsor. This episode is brought to you by transitcenter.org. And Transit Center has a new podcast. It's called High Frequency. It is a podcast about the people who are fighting to make transit faster, better, more reliable in cities all around the U.S. Um, They've got three episodes up and running right now. It's a really nice listen. They're short and sweet. Have you guys had a chance to check it out?
1: I have. It's great. You can just dip in and really get a good overview of specific transit issues and how they are so important
0: to fixing cities. It's great. It's really well done.
3: If you like the war on cars, you know, you're probably going to, resonate with this
0: definitely and transit center if you've never heard of the organization they're really they've really become the nation's leading think tank on transit and not just in new york city but in cities all around the u.s and they get great people coming in every day and many of whom are dropping by their podcasts so do check it out high frequency on apple on spotify wherever you get your podcasts
3: also, some very exciting news for us personally, which is that we're taking the show on the road. We're going to Denver, Colorado, and we'll be there Monday, February 10th at Bicycle Colorado's annual Moving People Forward Conference. And you can still register for that event at bicyclecolorado.org. And we're super excited about, about going there and doing a live show. We're
1: also going to be in Washington, D.C. in March. March 16th, we'll be doing a live episode taping at the League of American Bicyclists National Bike Summit, which should be a lot of fun.
3: All right. So let's get back to the Suburban. The Suburban is kind of amazing once you start looking into it. It is, among other things, the longest running nameplate in automotive history. That's the industry lingo.
0: Good jargon. Yeah. Yeah.
3: There has been a suburban manufactured, rolling off the production line since 1935, which is kind of incredible.
0: Wow. So what? which came first, the suburban or the suburbs?
3: The suburbs came first. Yeah. yeah. there were, by, by that time, there were already were suburbs. And this was marketed to families living, you and know. Or
0: fleeing the city, basically. It's yeah. like, here's your vehicle to get out of the city. We're actually naming it the get out of the city vehicle.
3: <laughs> right. Is the suburban. Right. Um, and so even though it was much smaller then than it is now, it was still a large vehicle that was, you know, you could put your family in and your picnic, Gear or your fishing gear or whatever, and get out into into nature. That was always part of it, and mm. it was always also not a car. It's it's never been a car. It's it was a station wagon body on a truck chassis. Mm. So so that's
1: basically like how almost all SUVs today are just passenger cars on truck bodies.
3: Yeah, exactly. So they pioneered that concept, and you know it was always big, and that was its thing. But then it just kind of kept getting bigger and bigger over the years it had two doors for the longest time until the late 60s when they added a third door which is
0: a third door but not a fourth
1: door not
3: a fourth door there were two doors on the passenger side of the vehicle but only one on the driver's side
0: the image that's coming to mind is is clark griswold's wagon queen family truckster (laughs)
3: you know, from <laughs> yes, National yeah,
0: Lampoon vacation. But that was Am a small. That myself? was,
1: but that's a smaller, lower it's too vehicle. Small, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's your like 1970s, 1980s station wagon. That's not the truck. It's even
0: bigger.
3: Yeah, it was also used as a work vehicle because it had this sort of smooth ride, but you know, also towing capacity. You know, it could haul a lot of stuff. So it was used for some very specific uses, like popular for ambulance, and also. Hearst. I was gonna say hearse. Yeah, still yeah. Used, still used a lot for that. So
1: get hit by a suburban, get hauled <laughs> off to the morgue and the cemetery <laughs> in a suburban.
3: Yeah. So it's evolved over the years, and its evolution has mostly been about it's just getting bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it is one of the biggest vehicles out there that you know that people buy for themselves and actually drive around. Um, the 2020 model is. Eighteen point seven feet long. Okay, let's put that in perspective. Let's put that in perspective. What what is the scale? So I looked that
1: up. So um, the the Chevy Suburban, eighteen point seven feet long. For comparison, a full sized African elephant. Okay, the largest among them are sixteen feet six inches long. So this thing is bigger than the largest land animal in the world.
3: Yeah, it's about the length of a really sizable great white shark.
1: Yeah. Isn't it so interesting though, like if you put your bag down on a seat next to you on the subway or you spread your legs, you're, you're manspreading, you're committing like a faux pas. Huge crime. It's terrible. It's not a thing you should do if you hug the pole on a subway or a bus, like you're taking up too much space, but you can drive this thing that is a mobile living room and nobody bats an eye. It's no big deal. You get a free parking space for it too.
3: And on top of actually taking up more physical space, Suburbans and all these other SUVs are actually muscling other cars out of the market, like sedans. Um, They're just becoming much more common. And that's really scary because every impact that cars have, SUVs have that impact, but worse, exponentially worse. For instance... SUVs were the second leading cause of the increase in carbon emissions between 2010 and 2018. And that was at the same time that that car emissions actually went down, but SUV emissions were increasing during that time. So
1: every gain in efficiency we got from better fuel standards was just lost by the weight of these
0: things, the power of these things.
3: Right, like the Suburban gets 14 miles per gallon in the city right and um, they're
0: allowed to because they're not cars they're light trucks right. so they it's, have a, they're just categorized differently yeah but so so how do we get from this place where the Chevy Suburban is mom's family car of the burbs to it becoming this sort of status symbol for drug dealers politicians and executives how do we get from there to here
3: So one of the explanations is that it's just been a brilliant marketing campaign on the part of GM that's gone on for generations. And, you know, this vehicle has appeared in about 1,800 movies and TV shows, including, you know, just about everything that you could imagine. But things like...
2: My name's David Byrne, and I made a movie. Whoa! Jay
0: and Silent Bob Strike Back to Waking Up in Reno. Friends. Capisce?
3: Got it. That's why it recently became the first vehicle to get its own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Really? Wow. How, does, do any, how does that happen? Yeah. Hmm. I don't have any idea. It couldn't <laughs> be anything to do with the amount of money the automotive industry puts into film and TV. But, um, you know, it's just in your face all the time. You don't even realize how often you're seeing these vehicles. But if you start looking for them, that's the thing. They're they're everywhere.
0: It's interesting how the Suburban has kind of supplanted the limo, right? Like when we were kids, the, the status car was like the stretch limo. Like Donald Trump used to roll around Manhattan in his stupid like white stretch limo or, or yeah. even
1: the term limousine liberal, which yeah. wouldn't exist today because there aren't sense. limousines in the same sense know anymore. What a limousine right. Is. It's right. Like- a stretch limousine. I mean, we all know that it's kind of shorthand for a stretch vehicle, which you just don't see anymore except for maybe proms and weddings, perhaps.
3: Yeah. So to talk about what SUVs are doing to streets around America, I called Angie Schmidt. Angie is a journalist who lives in Cleveland. She used to write for a streets blog, and she's currently working on a book about the pedestrian safety crisis in the United States. It's going to be out in August from Island Press. And she started writing this book because of this surge of pedestrian deaths over the last decade. The number of fatalities has gone up more than 40% since 2008. In 2018 alone, 6,227 pedestrians were killed by drivers in the United States.
0: And tens of thousands more injured. I mean, we'd barely even count the maimings and injuries.
3: Angie says that the proliferation of SUVs bears a lot of responsibility for those numbers.
2: Actually, it's probably the factor we can point to most clearly. It's probably the factor that we have the best data about. Over the last several years within the last decade, more pedestrians have been hit by cars, but when they do get hit, those crashes are 29% more deadly. So either cars are hitting people at faster speeds and I actually think that's probably happening as well, but Part of the thing is they're being hit with heavier vehicles.
3: And it's not just the weight of the vehicle. It's the height, the hood height of these vehicles just keeps going up as well.
2: The way it impacts what happens to a person in a crash is a lot different. With a normal sedan, the pedestrian might be thrown up onto the hood, right? But with some of these bigger trucks, yes, especially children pushed under and run over, which is really not good, obviously.
1: Right. So with a sedan, the you know, if you're not killed, you your your legs are broken, you fall onto the hood, you roll off to the side. Hopefully you survive. With the SUV, it's got a flat front. It pushes you, knocks you straight back, and runs you over.
3: There was actually a video going around New York City Twitter this morning of a pedestrian who had been trapped underneath an SUV. Yeah,
0: that was hideous.
1: Yeah, and tons of people came and lifted the SUV yeah, off of and, her. Yeah, and, really, and that was lovely. That part yeah. was great, yeah.
3: You know, but it's, but it's like you always say, Aaron, I, it, this thing of like these vehicles are like the wolves in the forest that oh, like yeah. come and then the villagers have to, to the edge of the forest. Yeah. And all the villagers came and saved this but, woman by lifting the SUV off of her.
0: I mean, it was striking. You know, we did that episode last year, last spring about the auto show, the New York auto show. And the thing that was really striking about the auto show were how enormous the fronts of the SUVs and trucks were getting just like every truck seemed to be competing to have like the taller hood, you know. So now like I'm six foot two and you could barely see, it was just my head poking over the hood on a lot of these new SUVs that are coming out this year, which is totally insane. It's like the driver can't see anything in front of them.
3: Yeah, and we'll link to some interesting visuals that have been done about, you know, if there's things in front of the car, there's a blind zone when those hoods are so high. Um, that includes, you know, children and smaller people pretty far in front of the vehicle.
1: There's been a lot of coverage of um, back-over deaths, you know, people pulling out of their garages and running over children. And now, because of SUVs, there's a new crisis emerging, which is front-over deaths, where people cannot see a child right in front of them in their driveway, and they run them over, their own children, their neighbor's children, and um, it's a huge problem.
3: Yeah, and what's very disturbing to me about this is... This is not news. Like the the fact that these vehicles are deadly and pernicious in a thousand different ways has been well documented for a long time. And as a matter of fact, in two thousand two, a New York Times reporter named Keith Bradsher wrote really wrote the book uh, about how terrible SUVs are. It's called High and Mighty. Highly recommend that book to, very good. to anyone. And it's just as relevant today as it was when it was published. And actually, maybe more so because everything that Bradcher writes about has just been supersized.
1: And actually, I'm such a nerd about this that there was a, I think when the book was released, there was a, a 60 Minutes expose on just the danger of SUVs. And so, yeah, it's been known for a long time.
3: One of the things that he writes about very powerfully, and and he really did the research and reporting on this, is the way that politicians and Other powerful people, cultural figures were even then moving from luxury sedans, limousines to SUVs.
2: A lot of these big SUVs have very luxurious interiors, but the outside puts on this pretense of being sort of rugged and working class. So a politician in New York that jumps into like a tricked out Explorer instead of like a limo can you know put on this pretense of being like more of a man of the people
0: i remember do you guys remember when they started really popping up in earnest it was like right after september 11th actually it was that 2002 2003 period and i i remember being struck by seeing like thinking like gosh like the vehicles are just getting really big and they all have these like yellow 9-11 ribbons magnetic ribbons attached to the back and it just felt like it was like some kind of I started to think of it as like a weird response to 9-11. Like, oh, we need to be protected now.
1: Yeah, where everything got militarized in a way and started to in a big way.
3: It telegraphs this sense that like it's me against the world. It's me and my family who are sometimes represented in those like stick figure Yeah, the little stick figure guys. Right, yeah. Um, You know, that it's us in this vehicle. We're going to survive yeah, and I do think it has to do with this military survivalist mindset that has come up, and it's not the best of the stuff that happened after 9-11, right? Which was everybody pulling together and like coming together as a city and whatever, which was a really strong thing that happened.
1: That lasted for about a week or two, like, yeah. <laughs> and then, then it was off to war and with bigger vehicles and guns everywhere. Right. Yeah, it
3: was yeah.
0: like, when I need to get out of the city, I'm going to have the largest vehicle to do it, which, yeah. of course, you will then be stuck at the, <laughs> Ver- at the Verrazano Bridge, but okay. Right.
3: Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that Keith Bradshaw's research, he he showed how the automotive companies had actually done the research, the market research that showed that people who drive SUVs actually are less community-minded and more individualistic and more selfish. And that was actually something that the auto companies understood about marketing these vehicles as opposed to, say, minivans.
2: If you're driving an SUV instead of a minivan, it allows you to sort of like... Pretend that you don't have kids, that you're single. The windows are tinted. Maybe you can't see, you know, the car seats in the back. <laughs> so they were like a little bit less committed to their families. He said. Whereas the minivan drivers were like running the carpool, very community oriented, um, much less concerned with keeping up appearances and like vanity was basically his point. And again, that was from these marketing executives' sort of insights about who gravitates towards what kind of vehicle.
0: And I, I, one of the more interesting meetings I ever had was with some uh, Chevy design executives who visited Boston when I was living there. And we were talking about like what kinds of cars would bike advocates want to see in cities? Like if bike advocates could design cars, what would you design? And one of the things I brought up was like, well, sliding doors would be really nice because then as a bicyclist, you wouldn't get doored if every car just had a sliding door on it. And they were just like. Whoa, man, sliding doors are m- for minivans, and those are like sissy cars. You well, can't d- sell those.
1: I mean, even the nickname for minivans is, some people call them loser cruisers. It's that's not a thing that anyone who wants to project masculinity or strength would want to be
3: driving.
2: Angie and I talked a lot about that. You often hear people sort of dragging and making jokes about someone who would drive a minivan, and nobody really does that for SUVs. And I think that's a big part of our problem as advocates, just trying to point out these problems. Those kind of things really matter. Those are the kind of messages we're hearing and internalizing that a minivan is a shameful car to drive, a small car is maybe effeminate and quirky, and a big car is just kind of above ridicule.
3: The the people marketing these things understand what they're doing so well and they're shaping public taste at the same time as they're responding to public desires and and changing public mores and, and fears and anxieties, right? So it's like, I think that they hit this sweet spot where we're increasingly militarized, increasingly feeling like the homeland needs to be protected. And at the same time, they're making more people into the kind of jerks who would drive SUVs. It's like this vicious circle. Well, and the thing
0: I always wonder about this is if you took the best automobile marketing executives in Detroit, in New York, LA, wherever they are, and you said, guys, make minivans cool. I, I actually think they could probably do it.
3: Of course they could, because you could, one way you could do that is to... I don't know, have Ryan Gosling or some guy that women just love because he seems nice and have him, sexy guy, driving a minivan and like sort of playing on that thing that women actually don't just like brutes. They also really respond to guys who seem like they might take care of them and their children uh, yeah, but I, so the, the history
1: of marketing in the United States is essentially preying on people's insecurities, right? Like, yeah. you don't actually need deodorant, for example. It's a really good example. Deodorant was created as a need because they created this campaign that basically said, like, you don't want to stink around other people. It wasn't a thing before marketing created that insecurity. You know, minty toothpaste was not a thing until they created halitosis as a total construction of the marketing industry. And I, I wonder... Any marketing campaign that's gonna make minivans cool would somehow have to prey on people's insecurities because aspirations are also based right. on insecurities as well. There it's what you are not. So how do you do that well, with yeah, something I, like I a bicycle or a minivan or I wasn't a scooter. thinking
0: of Sarah's approach of just like making Ryan Gosling like a like a good dad. <laughs> I was thinking more just like the Michael Bay, like there'd be like an explosion in the background and yeah. then like a sliding door of a minivan would open and then like then like Ryan gosling and like, you know like body armor. Slow with
3: motion. Not, not Ryan Gosling, the like The Rock. The Rock. Okay. Yeah. The rock. okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, so, I mean, to, back to sort of like the point of marketing is like, yes, because all of this stuff is an invention and they can invent whatever they want. So there is a possibility that this could this could happen if, if only they would pour the money into it.
0: So we're talking about marketing and psychological reasons why Americans want these bigger and bigger vehicles, but there's just a bottom line reason to the whole thing too, right?
2: Auto companies want to sell SUVs because they're way, way, way more profitable. Like auto companies are netting like 10 to 15K more on SUVs than they are on cars. And a lot of times they're based on the same frame. Like they, bam, they're able to convince everyone SUVs are better. They get a $15,000 profit where before they would get $2,000.
1: Part of it, I think, is that we're up against, obviously, I just saw an ad with Matthew McConaughey in some sort of oh my Lincoln, Lincoln. 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 Oh, my God. Lincoln. Oh, my God. Those ads, ads are just insane. It was like a Lincoln insane. glacier melter or something like that. Yeah. And he literally is out in the snow-covered mountains sitting in his car like it's some cabin where he's sleeping or something. <laughs> and so that's what we're up against is, is celebrities, the tastemakers, the people that people look up to selling us stuff we don't need.
3: Yeah, what we need is celebrities and tastemakers to maybe care enough about this that they would put themselves into, you know, that they'd be selling something else that's actually good for people.
0: Well, and there was an interesting ad that just came out with LeBron James um, advertising bicycles, essentially. And that yeah. I that was a really interesting development to see a celebrity of that stature and global renown uh, essentially doing an ad for, you know, biking as transportation and talking about how the bicycle gave him freedom as a kid. And it was an ad for Lyft, the ride hailing company. So that was kind of an interesting twist. But
1: Lyft was, owns all the bicycle share right. companies in in many of the cities across the United States. So
0: they're, they're selling that. But it really is like, it's one of the things we have to think about is like, we're up against this like enormous, profitable corporate juggernaut in the automobile industry. And like what are the market-based solutions that are going to like change that or how do governments regulate these companies to change that
1: but the, i think the problem we're up against too is that these are, cars are products that are marketed as a lifestyle and what we often talk about on the podcast is a lifestyle that needs to be marketed as a lifestyle so what's missing there is a product to sell there isn't there isn't billions of dollars for some company to make um, in me not buying a car and right. me buying a $300 so the bicycle. With, like,
0: bikes are just not expensive enough right. to be worth anyone's while.
1: To... Yeah, exactly. Or smaller cars, as Angie is saying, like a $2,000 profit margin on a single sedan is not going to put dollar signs in the eyes of Detroit executives who can sell $15,000 in profit margins on an SUV.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I keep thinking of the World War II-era ad campaign. You know, when you drive alone, you're driving with Hitler, You know, that those kinds of ad campaigns, which I think were very powerful and and people really took those messages in about conserving resources, that that came out of a crisis. Like that's the other thing, right, besides just sheer naked capitalist greed that occasionally can motivate this country to do things on a large scale is crisis. And of course, we have a crisis uh, in the climate crisis. And if there were the right leadership, that would be another avenue you know, but in the meantime, LeBron, uh, thank you for being right. uh, a celebrity who is standing for something different, and, that, that's, and it's genuine. The thing about the LeBron thing is it's not just, you know, he has a personal story about what bicycles meant to him as a child, and he really wants to give that to children who are growing up today. And so that makes that especially powerful. Right.
0: And, you know, we've done this before, like, like the American people have forced the automobile industry to change before, you know, cars didn't used to have seatbelts and airbags and automakers fought seatbelts and airbags, like just things that we consider the most basic safety features for cars, crumple zones, you know, cars were insanely dangerous before the 1970s. And, you know, sort of the American people banded together in the form of government and forced them to change. And it's kind of what has to happen again today. It's like these guys are not going to change unless they're regulated to change. I
1: I was also thinking about cigarettes because cigarettes were marketed as a very glamorous product. Magazine ads showing beautiful women smoking them. They appeared also in lots of movies. Humphrey Bogart. I mean, if you watch movies from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s, all the way through the 80s. You see main characters smoking for no real reason. Now, in a movie, when someone's smoking, it's because of a very specific character choice. The movie industry has stopped glamorizing smoking and taking money from tobacco companies. So I think that could be part of it, too. Like Maybe there's a shaming campaign that needs to go on. Cities eliminated smoking, for the most part, by taxing them and... Telling you where you could and couldn't do right. them, restricting where yeah. they could go, tax them and restrict them.
0: I mean, that's kind of do what we the have same to do for cars. SUVs.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and there
3: need to be like the major environmental organizations, which have been really, really lame uh, when it comes to advocating for for vehicle regulation that has never been a priority for the Sierra Club or similar organizations. They need to take the yeah
0: it feels untouchable a little bit but i think there's a place for cities to band together somehow or another to really start to drive the change if a bunch of major cities were like look we're going to create a new set of regulations for what kinds of vehicles are allowed on our streets allowed to park Mm -hmm. at curbsides allowed to drive into our core of our downtowns the auto industry might be forced in some way to change just like they're forced like when california changes environmental law often auto industry has to change too just because one state did it
1: and maybe that gets us back to the beginning because the people we are relying on to kick these suvs out of our cities rely on these suvs to project an image of status and power and so we we need especially yeah we need a new generation of politicians who don't care about being seen in one of these things
3: on that note that's it for this time Thank you for listening to this episode of The War on Cars and indulging my obsession with the Chevrolet Suburban.
0: Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because that helps people find us and write with any comments, questions, or suggestions to. The War on Cars at gmail.com.
1: As always, we'd like to thank our top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vicar and White in New York City, Huck and Elizabeth Finney, and Drew Rains.
0: And don't forget to check out the new podcast from transitcenter.org. It's called High Frequency. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
3: This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. It was produced and edited by Matt Cutler. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D.